0: Health is a state of body and mind. Wellness is a state of being. We want you to have both. This is Channels of Health, the podcast giving you ideas and insights into new and time-tested avenues to health, from mental wellness and innovations in mental health to our daily lives and overall health journeys. Join your hosts, Patty and Damien, both founders of organizations dedicated to healing as they bring candid conversations and new information to you. Let's start the show. Here are your hosts, Patty and Damian.
1: Start us off with when you say your clients. Let's just go all the way back to, because I know we got to start with a story, but first tell us what it is that you do. Our listeners, what is it that you do?
2: I am an interventionist and a treatment placement specialist. I get phone calls from therapists, Uh, defense attorneys families who have been referred to me by other families who have been my clients um, hospitals emergency rooms uh, police departments fire departments then you name it and eighty percent I'm based in Oklahoma City and Los Angeles Uh, I spend most of my time in Oklahoma City and eighty percent of my clients are from all over the country I don't advertise I don't do a lick of publicity and yet they find me. So I'm, I'm flattered that they do. And what I do is somebody will come to me, one of those individuals will come to me and say, you've got to help this person. And it could be an adolescent, it could be an adult, it could be a, a millennial, it could be a head of family, it could be anyone. And the first thing that I need to know is what's the diagnosis? Okay. I don't have the letters after my name. So I do not do an assessment. I can do my own personal estimation, but trust me, I don't use that. I need it from a professional. I like to say to people who are therapists and so forth, think of me as a golden retriever. Okay, (laughs) And that is... You tell me what this person needs in, ter- in terms of treatment, and you throw that ball and I go out and fetch it and I bring it back. And when I bring it back, I've got a, a several, uh, up to two, four, six, eight or 12 different facilities that would fit that individual. Then you get into, like, well, what fits an individual? Well, the first thing that has to be determined, there are basically four diagnoses. One is just mental disorder. Another one is just substance use disorder. Another one is primary substance use disorder, secondary mental disorder. And then primary mental disorder, secondary substance use disorder. Why do I say that? Because you've got to match that individual with a facility mm-hmm. whose licensure is exactly that.
1: And
2: one of those four. Exactly. Okay. And because that is the only way in my estimation, to make sure that you're sending an individual to the right facility in terms of the treatment. And then you've got all the other factors involved. First of all, how's the person going to pay for it? What are the resources? Is it insurance? Is it private pay? Is it a combination of insurance and, and cash, which it usually is? Sure, of course, yeah. um, Is it court ordered? Is, uh, what is the, uh, all the other issues that, uh, you know, for um, a rehab uh, mm-hmm. facility? Is it co ed? Do they have single gender treatment? I mean, the list goes on and on. So, believe me, the, what I love is <clears throat> I love knowing the facilities. If you were to say, What's my value? My value is knowing which facilities match a certain individual. Mm. That's my value.
1: That's the skill right there. Yeah.
2: And then I take care of everything. (laughs) Yeah. So that the only... I take care of all the arrangements. I take care of all the insurance like the VOB, the verification of benefits. I take care of every single detail except for two issues, two items. One item is there has to be an over-the-phone assessment between the facility, their clinician, and the individual. Mm. And it's best if that's done with the individual alone, and not with a family member or anybody else in the room, yeah. because a lot of times they're reticent to tell the real truth. And if it's insurance driven, they have to tell the truth, or else the insurance will cover it. <clears throat> and then the other issue, which I can't do myself, is that the, the facility has to speak with the financial guarantor of the resources that are paying for this, uh, for this treatment. You wanted to ask a question. A question. Oh. Yeah. you're in the audience. <laughs> you seem to place a lot of faith in. Man, you are asking exactly the right question.
1: <laughs> Listeners, that is Steve, uh, good friend Steve. He's not mic'd, so we apologize. Let me repeat the question. I can't repeat that question. I have no idea how to repeat
2: that question. That was what, too what complicated. You, what, Go for basically, it. Basically, Steve, if I understand correctly, is how much trust can you put into the diagnosis that I'm getting? That's a great question. And there's no... You have to get... Before an individual goes to a facility, the facility has to do an over-the-phone assessment with the individual. Now, is it parallel? Does it, does it concur with the uh, diagnosis? that we think it is already, that we've been given by another professional. A lot of times it it isn't. A lot of times there are other issues that are brought up. Uh, But another way, and when there is a conflict, one of the things that I do, and especially is for somebody who's been to several facilities, and yet this person is still relapsing, or yet this person is still having issues. And what I like to do is I like to send that person to a facility that's not a rehab it's not a treatment facility what it is is they do stabilization diagnosis and then they recommend the treatment for that individual and it's a 21-day program they're in network with all the insurance companies and what they do is invaluable because frequently a person will go into this facility thinking well we all think this is what it but at the end of the day actually it's something else there is that but what's really driving it is something else. And only then can you really make sure that you're sending that person to the right treatment facility. But I will say that 60% of people relapse within the first year uh, of treatment, within a year of treatment. And you say to yourself, my God, that's high. You know what, it's, it's the same or better than those who relapse, do- in diabetes mm. treatment, hyper, hyper, uh, hypertension, and also asthma. I mean, other diseases. Look at the um, uh, re- relapse rates f- for those diseases. Interesting. So, it's. I always. I tell parents of millennials. I say, listen. I can tell you right now, most millennials will relapse. Most, not all, but most. And I always end up telling parents. Relapse doesn't mean it's a failure of treatment. You have to think of relapse as part of the journey. Mm. And what it means is the treatment wasn't a failure. What it means is that something in the treatment right now is not working, whereas it may have been working before. So we got to change that.
3: So when you say that millennials are going to relapse, are you saying that people that are of that generation will continue? To relapse, or do you think that or are you saying that people in that age group right now do you know that I mean?: I Yes, think- In my
2: experience, um, it will it, frequently, not all the time, of course, but there are individuals who are in their 20s, um, sometimes in their young 30s, <clears throat> who frequently they will relapse four or five times before they finally decide enough. Mm-hmm. because they have to—they're the ones who have to determine that they want to get sober and they want to stay sober.
1: So it's really an issue of life experience. It hasn't sucked long enough.
3: That's kind of what I was trying to get I mean, to, like, why would it happen yeah. with them? And so, yeah, so now would it be the same if somebody were diagnosed later? Were they Would they also probably have an ongoing issue of relapsing until
2: it, interesting. it sucked too
1: much? That's interesting, you know what yeah, asking? yeah. <laughs>
2: like, well, it, It's funny you should say that, because there are programs. (laughs) No, it's it's very smart, because there are programs that are structured for people who relapse. By design. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And so there are programs targeted for that type of patient.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. So let me, uh, for our listeners, and this is a common challenge for us, we'll get really involved with the person, and then I have to remember that there's people actually listening, and I need to give some context.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah,
1: they're more listening through the wall than sitting in the conversation. So uh, I'm going to ask kind of documentary style questions, which I'm sure you're, you're used to or comfortable with. Um, when I hear the process you go through, now remember, I don't know your story. I just know there is one there. But when I hear the process you go through, that does not sound fun. That does not sound like something that anybody would choose to do. So you know where I'm going. I need you to fill in what is the fire? Where? Because Steve, who we were talking with earlier, I, I know his story. So watching his actions makes sense, right? When you're telling me all of that process, and you got to get this, and you got to check that, and you got to, eh, why? Like we need the story. If you can just kind of walk us through how in the world did you get here, and you know, um, walk us through it.
2: I. The very beginning was, when I found out that my son was uh, addicted to substances, his mother and I had had not a clue. And because I didn't know anything about addiction whatsoever, I was very lucky because I had a very, very close friend who did know. Mm. He was in recovery for over 26 years himself. He was a very well-known individual. <clears throat> um, it, it, he, he was a celebrity, you can say. And when I called him, I told him what's going on. He said, just hold on a minute. I'm going to have you know uh, an individual from Cumberland Heights call me and just do what that person tells you to do. <clears throat> Within 24 hours, my loved one was sitting in detox in one of the best rehabs on the planet. And... Eventually, it uh, wasn't too long when I get started getting phone calls from friends, friends of friends, and then people who I didn't even know, who would say, "Hey, I heard about you and, and your family, but you know what? I got the same problem. What the hell do I do?" And so then I would, because of my friend who got me got immediately got you know my family member treatment right away, um, I started to meet some of the really uh, the people in the treatment world uh, who have integrity, who have very strong ethics, and I started helping people get into facilities that would be that would fit them. And then it wasn't too long before I realized, oh my God, I love doing this, and I don't know why. And now I do it full time. I don't know why I love it. All I know is that I do, and I was, it's funny, I was talking about it the other day with, uh, with my girlfriend, and you know, I have asked myself several times, life, okay, you live, you do what you do, and you die, what's the point? And I, th- I think I found something for me, anyway, is I think people really sh- are here to help other people to do what you're able doesn't mean you're a saint doesn't mean that you're a prince it's just that if it feels like the right thing to do that's your destiny
1: agreed that's awesome yes, yes. that's awesome
2: My, like example i was in the movie business for 30 years mm-hmm. i never once <laughs> i never once had an individual call me up and say Hey, Walter, I I saw your movie. I got to tell you, your movie saved my life. I love you. I get those calls now. Now, do I live for that? No, because it's actually, I didn't save anybody's life. Sure. Because it's the individual who walked through that door. It wasn't me. Mm. It was the individual and the individual's family. But it goes to show you how... It this affects people because yeah. when I was in the movie business, we used to think we're doing the most important thing in the world. Get out of my way. <laughs> Guess what? Not so much. <laughs> Not true. Not so much. <laughs> for me, it's about karma. That's it. Yeah. It's about karma. It you treat people the way that you would like to be treated. And it's something I, I think you sort of develop and yeah. you sort of fall in love with it. Yeah,
1: for sure.
3: He has such a passion for helping people that he has written a book. So tell us about your book, Walter. <laughs> How's that for a segue? That
1: was, that was
2: pro-segue
1: right there. That was well done.
2: In my business, in my former business, I worked a lot with agents. And I'm, about three years ago, one of the agents, with whom you know, we're friends, mm-hmm. and we stay in touch. Not for business, but for just because we're friends. And he called me up. He said, you know what, Walter? Um, I can make a book deal for you. I said, what are you talking about? He says, look at what you're doing today. I, You've got a story. Mm. Yeah. Why don't you think about it and tell me what you'd like to do? I thought about it, and I said, okay, let's go. Let me see what I can do. I don't know if I can write. Hell, yeah. I mean, I did a lot of writing when I was in the business.
1: Screenplays. and Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. but, um, okay, so, and I found that if you have a passion for something, you know, I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not understanding why, but I can tell you right now that if you're <laughs> writing, <a> yeah, <laughs> if you're writing about something which you love, man, it just flows. Yeah. It just comes out. It does. It just really does. It does. Um, so I wrote the book, and we made a deal with a publisher, and the name of the book is "The Right Rehab: A Guide to Addiction and Mental Illness Recovery When Crisis Hits Your Family." So the bottom line is it's a book for people like me mm. in the very beginning. When I'm given that news and the first thing I say is, oh, my God, what the hell do I do? Right. This book is a user manual. Wow. For people step by step by step wow. of exactly what you need to do and exactly what you need to avoid in getting yourself or your loved one the right kind of treatment. And it's for people who live in park avenue Mm -hmm. to skid row what i do is i explain it doesn't matter what your income level is and what your socioeconomic level is it tells you exactly this is how there's treatment out there for you and this is how you can get it and that's why i am blessed with all the comments all the you know the blurbs the testimonials that you see because lo and behold, I'm more shocked than anybody. Hmm. It's like, oh, my God, Walter, this is the first time something like this has been written and first time something like this has been published. There are thousands of books about addiction. There are thousands of books about recovery. As it turns out, there aren't a lot of books if, uh, about, like, okay, you got a problem. Here's what you do step by step.
3: And Just think of how much you're saving people. I don't mean just in money, but also money. Think of the time and how much quicker somebody is getting into the recovery part of their program. How many months, even years, are people wasting? Those are crucial months. And Those are crucial. People are making wrong turns and they're wasting money and wasting time. You're smiling over there because you've got a comment about mm-hmm. that.
2: Because you're talking about me in the beginning. However, I was lucky because I knew right from the beginning what to do because somebody was there to tell me what to do right. who did know. Okay. I call it the Mount Everest of learning curves. There you go. Okay. And, but for me, uh, I had an advantage. You had a Sherpa. <laughs> I, not only the Sherpa, I had the helicopter Yeah, They'd pick me up at yeah. the base Just and take drop me to you. the top, yeah. okay? And I realized most people aren't as lucky as I am. Yeah. And they asked what, and that's, I can't tell you, I had a family come in and see me at the beginning of my practice. And <clears throat> there were nine of them who came in. And about one of their relatives who had an alcohol issue, a substance issue. <clears throat> and th- we sit down in the conference room and one of the uncles speaks up. He says, all right, now listen, I just Googled rehabs. Hundreds of them show up. Why the hell are we hiring you? And I said, well, actually are 15,385 <laughs> out there in the country right now, okay? Now, can you tell me which is the right one for your nephew? And there was a pregnant pause, and the guy said, "Okay, good point." <laughs> Continue. That's the least. idea. Yeah. I can't tell you how many clients who come to me like, "Oh man, I wish I had come to you in the beginning." I bet. You know, because they looked on Google, and hey, it looked good on Google. You yeah. know, and also a lot of times, you know, they'll see that flashing number to call late at night on yeah. a on a on a on an ad, and what people don't realize is that they're calling a call center. Yeah. And those people are not addiction specialists, they're salespeople, and they're reading a script. And the only thing about which they care is getting your credit card number, period. And also, there are a lot of times where, I don't know if you've heard the term, it's been uh, spoken about a lot lately, it's called body brokering. And that is people who will take, who will arrange for somebody to go to a rehab, oh, we're gonna pay your airfare too, okay? And, but what what the victim, doesn't realize and the victim's family is that that individual is taking the victim to that particular rehab because that's the rehab that's paying them the highest fee of course okay It's a commission it's a kickback and in some states it's illegal as it should be mm. and I got to tell you the the, the the facilities with which uh, I work and when I say work that I to which I send people if they're the right facility, they would no longer do such a thing than just, you know, yeah. then fly to the moon. It's out of the question. No. And so you, you really have to be careful because yeah. you really don't know.
3: This is a new concept. If anybody could
2: have seen yeah. my face in
3: Damien's face, I like, wrote it down. What's going on here? That's crazy. So what kind of people, I mean, aside from people, but <laughs> what, where do these people come from? Because usually referrals come from the primary
1: care physician or their therapist or... I mean, how does this these happen? are websites, right? But uh,
2: these these not only websites, but um, a lot of times they'll have people in hospitals that they will pay wow. for every client you give us. It's like in Hollywood. You know, when so-and-so, really a famous celebrity, goes to the hospital, you know, you always want to keep it quiet, yes, keep it quiet. Different but, names. But, and... but publications who, like tabloids who love that stuff, they pay people in the hospital.
3: So these are people that are already employed
2: at the hospital? No, no, no. I'm just saying there are some of them is what I'm saying. No, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't mean to impugn the reputations of people working in hospitals. Sure. What I'm saying is the, a lot of these facilities will do anything in the world to get the name yeah. and the phone number for somebody. Yeah. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not imputing the sure. reputation but of But you're talking
1: about kind of the ambulance chasing. Uh, I mean, I used to do marketing and stuff in, around medical industries and it's it's predatorial capitalism. Yes. It's completely okay and ethical to these people to go hang out in a hospital and make some friends and find out some references because yes. they're still being paid for conversions, right? Yes. And we talk about that a lot, the business aspect. Yeah, you got to justify these beds. You got to do, there's a business aspect of it that's running, but it's such a disconnect from the family members that are in the middle of the worst moment of their life.
2: Well, let me give you an example. Okay, this treatment business is a $42 billion a year business, and it's growing. And there are a lot of grifters and charlatans. Who and imposters who want a piece of that pie? Yeah. And how do they do it? Yes, some of them do it uh, through body brokering. Some mm-hmm. of them do it by starting a rehab, which has had three name changes mm-hmm. because they keep getting sued mm-hmm. uh, or going bankrupt. And but one of the ways in which they make money is through drug testing. And like for instance, I have a client who spent nine months in in a. Uh, sober Living House, <clears throat> a PHP program, which is an outpatient program, um, for nine months. And this facility, the mother would see all uh, the checks um, that would, she, she would see all the, uh, the, the documentation from the insurance company. This is how much we're paying you. for your son's care. And $90,000 was $90,000 over seven months. And in reality, it was the test. That was the big moneymaker for that facility because they were charging for tests that, A, didn't occur. Like they would say, like three times a week, which in reality, he would be tested once every other week. <clears throat> and also they charged an outrageous fee per test. Right. So And when it comes to treatment, he would only go to one group therapy session per, per week. Right. And he's supposed to be going to either five or three. So it's a scam. Mm-hmm. And you're going to find people who want a piece of that pie, and they'll do whatever they're able to do to get it.
3: And this goes right back to that uncle. I'm sitting here having had a personal experience as well with a lot of people that have been through treatment, and I didn't understand. I mean, that was the first time I'd heard body brokering. So now I put myself into the shoes of a parent who has just been told that their kid has a, has a problem, a substance abuse problem, and not even thinking of... What you just said, just the whole amount of work seems overwhelming to begin with. Forget about the people that are out there trying to scam you. All the more reason that what you have written is incredible. And look at how many people that you can touch. I mean, when you have people calling you, there's only so many people that you can see in a day. You're a human, and there's only so many hours. You've got a limitation. You put together this information in a book, which, by the way, is going to be published when?
2: November 15 by Roman and Littlefield. Thank you very and much. And I'm very, very lucky, let me tell you. They're a fantastic company.
3: I, we will have you back, and you can do whatever book tour promotion or whatever you want to do. But I, I really wanted to give you time to talk today about what's upcoming in this book so that we can get that information out and then talk about it again. So let's, let's get back to the subjects that are in the table of contents on that book, if you don't mind. Please.
2: <clears throat> First of all, most of the time when parents uh, or anybody else has a loved one or a friend, uh, they find out that they have a substance issue or a mental disorder, and or both, um, it's because that there's been an intervention. When I say intervention, I'm not talking about what you see on TV or like what I do. I'm talking about an outside third-party intervention. It could be an overdose. It could be an accident. It could be a DUI. It could be anything which involves uh, medical personnel uh, or um, a criminal justice. So a
1: moment of reality, basically. A
2: moment of like, oh, my God, I can't believe this hasn't happened before.
1: It just requires you to get super clear in that moment. Is that that the...
2: None. You just put it it beautifully. Because let's say if there's like your son is or daughter, they've been arrested. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, first of all, for what have they been arrested? Is it a DUI? You know, is it a is it a misdemeanor? Is it a felony? Right. Okay. Uh, Does do you have a defense attorney? Okay. Most people don't, so they have to start scrambling for a defense attorney. I get defense attorneys often for people, and. Um, and it's and so that's usually uh, a lot of times that's the first time somebody has to deal with this issue, and they are terrified. They are in crisis, and this is precisely the time when they're ra- they're ready to grab on to anything that promises. Oh my God, this is the way we can do it. We this is going to save us. Well, that's where you come in with the grifters and the imposters and so forth, and so. That's, the book deals with that, and when I first say, okay, if and when that happens, or in any event, whenever you find out, <clears throat> there's a whole list of issues that you have to know when when a loved one is, uh, either has overdosed or has been arrested, and I, I start with all kinds of questions, such as, you know, uh, how long has has the addiction been going on? Um, has the person been to treatment before? Has the person been arrested before? Has the person uh, is there a warrant out for his or her, her arrest? Does the person is is he or she employed? Uh, does the person have uh, additional family members, siblings? How do they how do they get along? Does he or she have any children? Where does that person live? Um, do you know how that person is getting the drugs? Who is enabling? that person I mean the list goes on and on it's about six pages okay and so and then and then the next chapter I talk about okay what is addiction and now again I'm not a physician I don't have the letters after my name but I do know people and I've done a lot of research on this I hear what the experts say and the experts say especially the Surgeon General, uh, he had the former one, Murphy, under Obama, right. and now he's a man, that guy's a saint. Let me tell you, he knows, he knows what he's doing. Um, really, the um, ones who I trust say that it's really a combination of genetics and environment. Okay? And the, the, there are certain things over, but more important than that, it's an illness it's not a matter of i always tell parents i say your son or your daughter it doesn't mean they have uh, bad character mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that they have you know very low morals <clears throat> it's not something that you could stop but bless her heart nancy reagan i got to tell you i believe she really really believed when she said don't just, say, just no. say no because most people did mm-hmm. She wasn't any different than most people, and she really tried to help. You have to really admire her for doing that. Unfortunately, it's not an issue that can be fixed with just say no. It's, so it's many
3: a- mental health issues are that way. People think that that's a choice. I know I'm picking it a little bit, but that, no, no. it is the just say no mindset. Mm-hmm. They, they do that with, we were talking about it earlier, if they think you're eating too much or if they think you're not
1: eating enough, just just say no. If, you know. But what's suggested in that is a character flaw. Right. That's what's always been amazing yes. to me. Like, just say no. Just stop eating, or just stop throwing up, or just. I believe that. Yeah, right. yeah, you know, and it's like, it, oh, I did too. And what we are suggesting to these people when we're when the word "just" is put in before the "no." It's like, what the hell is wrong with you, dude? Just say no. Just, say no. just put gas in your car, right? Like, it, it's just, just turn on the
2: mic switch. It's so car.
1: flippant. Like, why'd you run out of gas? Just put gas in your car. You know, it's like, uh, I think there's a little bit more to it than...
2: Well, it, it's, I'll tell you the truth. It, it, it's like it, when it happens to you, and I still have parents who, in the beginning, they believe that. Mm-hmm. Because the parents have to go into recovery, too. Okay? Interesting. It's, we... I'm I'm gonna sort of go over. You can jump around. It's
1: all you, man. Go for it.
2: When I do work with families, um, yeah, somebody, one, a member of the family goes to treatment. A lot of times, families think that so and so is going away, and when he or she comes back, they're gonna be fixed. Oh boy, we
3: hear that a lot. We do hear that with
1: the eating disorder community. Yeah. It
3: seems like whenever, they're, whenever they, quote, go away, they're going to come home fixed. Whatever the co- it's like church they're going camp. Home to get, whatever they're leaving to get fixed is going to be magically fixed when mm. they get home. Yeah.
2: Well, unfortunately, when somebody comes back fixed, if he or she is going back into the exact same environment Something where works. she left or he left, uh, guess what?
3: And what may have even caused their problem the, the, to begin you know, with. Not maybe. Yeah,
2: it did. Finding a little
3: grace. (laughs) Yeah, and
2: and that's why I'm a big proponent of the families. They also have to start therapy as well, Mm. and they have to be in recovery as well. Now, the best way to find out how to do that is there's a book that's been written by a phenomenal professional in the treatment world. Her name is Deborah J., and she has written a book called "It Takes a Family." I'm telling you right now, it's the best book. The second best book is one of the two best books I have ever read about addiction and recovery. Wow, She nails it That's for right the family. Right. She nails it. And not only does she ta- write about it, but she also shows the family how to do it. Yeah. Okay? I mean, it's kind of like my book in a way because i explain to people right. like how do you get medicaid how do you get obamacare how do you you know how do you qualify for it i've got the uh, the federal poverty level listings in there i mean the whole nine yards she does the same thing when it comes to how does a family go into recovery and support their loved one so that that loved one does not relapse and be and Basically, is able, you're able to live a family life again.
1: It's interesting if you if you look at it. This comes up so much in our conversations. Going back to Nancy Reagan. At that time, people started writing books on the theory of addiction, right? And there's so many books telling us what addiction is. But there's not a whole lot of tactical, practical, what to do. Now we're entering into a stage where I think most people were theorized out, like, all the theories around addiction that's great but now it seems like content is moving towards very practical in case of emergency break glass like go get that book and it's really very tactical but it seems like we have to start with theory and then people are like well, okay we got the theory now what the hell do we do you know so you have a what the hell do we do book
2: well not only that but the first chapter is called breaking the glass you <laughs> okay very cool um, but, but also, I, it's not only, I don't want to give uh, something a short shrift, and that is there's more than addiction going on. Mental disorders, 20% of our adult population, that's 18 and over, are suffering from a mental disorder.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, a mental disorder will range from you know depression, anxiety, but that person can still live and work and have a social life and be a part of the social fabric a lot of people are going to therapy and are taking medication and you would never know it okay but then there are and that they have what's called an AMI any mental illness any mental illness, this illness uh, encompasses all mental disorders from anxiety that can be controlled so to speak you know can be managed sure okay all the way to you know a paranoia, a paranoid schizophrenia, where people is at some people forget about a normal life. They have to be uh, in a situation where they can never be out in public again. Mm-hmm. That's called any mental illness. The ones who can't function in a normal life, that's called SMI, serious mental illness. And the reason I mention this is that because there's 61 million people in this country who are suffering from a mental disorder. Nine and a half million of them have a dual diagnosis, which means they are suffering from a mental disorder and a substance use disorder, okay? So my whole point is mental disorders, and, and now you're hearing a lot more about mental disorders because of the mass shootings mm-hmm. that we're having. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, That's a whole other subject. But I will say that we really, this country really has to put the pedal to the metal when it comes to how do we work with people who are mentally, who have mental disorders. Now, the the SAMHSA, the, the Government agency that works with um, substance use disorder, substance abuse, and mental health—they uh, say that 60% of people with a, an addiction that they have also a, a co-occurring, um, a, a dual diagnosis of also mental disorder. I find that in my work, 80%. Hmm. There's some whether it's a primary mental disorder and secondary substance, or the reverse, or it's just mental disorder.
1: Right. Right.
2: So it's. So so the reason I bring that up is that that's also in the in the second chapter. And then I also talk about physical dependence. A lot of times people have surgery like I did three times and they'll start taking oxycodone. Yeah. Um, You've got to really be conscious conscious. Of like when to stop the oxycodone, because I found out myself, it's very easy to develop a physical dependence. Mm-hmm. Physical dependence is not addiction. Right. Physical dependence is a uh, part of um, of of addiction, but it's not it. Yeah. But it's not. And I say, you know, like I'm, a, I, I have a physical dependence upon caffeine. But you know, I don't have to live my life constantly within blocks of Starbucks. Right. 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 So that's a good analogy. Yeah, good explanation. That's yeah. a different story. Yeah,
1: uh, you're it, at Starbucks all day. Yeah, you're hanging out at Starbucks. Yeah, yeah. No,
2: but that, uh, but addiction is a different story where your whole life, you know, revolves around it. Gotcha. And then, and then, the th- do you mind if I go on? No, no, I don't, I do. don't mind at all if you go no. on. I think we're doing fine. And then the next chapter is really about okay, what is the right rehab? And again, I have a whole, the whole chapter is devoted to this is what you want in a rehab in terms of the, um, the treatment, mm-hmm. the personnel, um, the, the living situation. Uh, and then I also point out this is what you don't want. So uh, I have a whole, I mean like I said earlier, um, I spent an hour and a half with a facility asking. I have what's called a facility profile. And it's a, it's a it's a spreadsheet of six Excel sheets <laughs> with all kinds of questions awesome. that I need to know about a facility. Well, I basically go through that in this chapter. So people who read this book have no excuse mm. for not knowing which is the right kind which of facility right and which okay. is not. And then the next chapter is saying, okay, what is... Um, And then also, what is the right rehab? What kind of treatment is really best for uh, a particular individual? So, like, I don't say a particular treatment, I say I get into like 30 days, 45 days, 60 days, 90 days. Um, Long story short is that if somebody can afford, has resources for 90 days of what I call formal treatment, um, that is, that is like, that, that is the best way that, uh, in order to, first of all, to get a start. Mm-hmm. I mean, 90 days doesn't, quote, unquote, fix people. But it's, it's, it's a good enough time where all the professionals are saying that is ideal because that's also part of, of a, a one-year program. So when I work with people, I put together a one-year treatment plan. So, whereas the first 90 days, if someone can again, I'm just saying, if someone ha- has the resources and can do it, 90 days of formal treatment, which means you know detox, residential, PHP, which is partial hospitalization, and then IOP, which is in intensive out, outpatient, and then outpatient. Whereas the last nine months after the first 90 days is uh, called RSS, Recovery Support Services. And what does that mean? That means you're going to AA meetings. That mm-hmm. means that you're going to group therapy um, at least once once a week. It means if you can do it, that you also have an individual therapist that you see you know, hopefully once a week or at least once a month. You know, as often and as you're able. But also you're living in a sober living facility, and so which is crucial because the statistics show that if somebody lives just for, let's say, sixty days in a sober living facility, they're most likely going to relapse. It usually takes a year minimum for treatment to really, you know, lock into uh, someone. That re- someone can get into recovery and actually sustain recovery, but three years is is optimum. Wow. Somebody who and these the statistics prove that. Wow. Okay.
3: What you're you're talking about is something that we have often asked treatment providers if they offer that. When somebody's coming into their facility, do you have an exit plan for for this patient? And so now I'm going to ask you that question. How many facilities in your experience have as a detailed plan like what you just described for the patient when they arrive?
2: Well, when it comes to facilities where I send clients? Every one. Exactly. And that's because that's part of my job. Now, I don't determine the treatment for that individual. Right, I, I have to hear from the from the therapist who are working with my client. They have to tell me, this is what so-and-so is going to need. Can you set that up? And in several times... If they already know,
3: Hmm.
2: you know, here's the people who we like to work with in in San Antonio, let's say. And I basically I'm there to help. Okay, Uh, so I work with the facility in terms of determining the options available. But they I always rely upon them to make the final decision. Yeah. They know my client infinitely better than I ever will. Sure. And and they're the ones who are the treatment professionals. Right. So I listen to them. So
3: one of the things you've referenced earlier, and I want to make sure that we give time for that, that you're able to help people whether they live on Park Avenue or are homeless on Skid Row. Mm -hmm. Talk about how you were able to do that because that's a pretty wide spectrum. (laughs)
2: well no that, that's actually very true well if one has the resources the best way to get treatment is with private pay okay so in other words you're paying cash for it and if you're paying cash I know programs that go from anywhere of you know um, you know uh, 5,000 7,500 10,000 12,000 a month all the way up to 80,000 a month right. okay Yes there are people who do who do pay that one thing I want to make very clear Does someone have to go through treatment in order to get sober? No. I can tell you a lot of examples of people. First of all, they may have had the resources or most of the time they don't. But I know people who walked inside of an AA meeting and bam, that's what they needed. Okay? Okay. And it's a remarkable thing. AA is the most remarkable thing that's ever happened if you ask me to this planet. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are ones who need more tools. And the way you get those tools is through either um, uh, an intensive outpatient um, treatment regimen or if you can have the resources, and a residential, a, a specialty facility, mm-hmm. which basically means it's detox, residential, and then PHP and ILP. It's a 90-day program. And then I also talk about, okay, how do you, how do you pay for this? Yeah. And so, if you live on Park Avenue, you got the cash, hey, no problem. Then I, okay, let's say you can't afford to pay all cash. Let's say you have insurance. That's a whole other megillah. I'm sure. But I will tell you right now, in the past, insurance has saved people's lives. Hands down. Period. Unfortunately, that's not the case today. And... I, I'm not gonna. We can have another discussion about sure. the details of insurance. Mm. The bottom line about insurance, in my experience right now, is that you pay your premiums every month and then they dare you to use it. Yeah. That's it. Okay? Well said. I can, well said. I agree. Yeah. And I can tell you right now if you are lucky enough to have uh, an insurance policy, a health insurance policy, uh, paid for by your employer, when I say paid for, they pour, pay for a part of it, but the individual, the right. employee, has to pay for part of it as well. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, that is changing. So that ever the employee now has to, first of all has to have is it, the experience is their deductibles now are getting larger. Right. Okay, and it also means that increasingly they have to pay more of the premium. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what does that mean? That means out of the 169 million people in this country who have employer-sponsored health insurance policies, 44 million of them are underinsured. Okay. And when I say underinsured, versus if they have a deductible of $7,500, most people can't pay that. It's not going to happen. Yeah. So you can have an insurance policy and, like, it doesn't do you any good. Most people have it because of Catastrophe, catastrophe, catastrophe. catastrophe. and and then catastrophic uh, insurance, and then um, I can go on for (laughs) freaking ever. Uh, Let me let me just say just some of the important points that people should know is that people often make the mistake. Well, I can go to treatment because I got an insurance policy. Right. Guess what? read the details. Hmm. And I can tell you right now most of the time insurance companies its 90 day plan has been the norm, right? The, the conventional sure. way of doing it. Insurance companies don't pay, don't cover 90%. Right? In the rare case they would. But in, bottom line, it's a pipe dream. The way it works is let's say the first stage will be a combination of detox, a detox and residential. Well, the residential conventionally, the residential period. That that period is a 30-day stage. 30 day period. Insurance companies almost never pay for 30 days. Wow. Because what they do is they call that they have to have constant communication with the facility about about where the patient is in his or her Treatment. So where the facility will say, well, Patty needs, she's been here for 10 days, she's going to need at least, she has medical necessity for more treatment. And several times the insurance company will not authorize more residential. Because residential is the second most expensive care for which they reimburse the facility. The most expensive being detox. But so what they want to do is they want to pay as few days as possible for residential care. And the next, and get down to the lower level of care, and that's called PHP, partial hospitalization. And what happens then, let's say you're only able to get, let's say, 12 days or 18 days of residential, frequently what happens is the resident, the facility will keep the patient in the residential program. And so the resident, so the patient you know, sleeps, eats, has, um, exactly nothing changes right sleeps in the same bed and everything but what what happens is though because the facility is getting less money now for the care they charge the individual or the family for room and board and the room and board is anywhere from $100 a week to up to $300 a week okay so what I'm saying to everybody and they do that for all the stages of treatment also the next stage which is pap php which they start early in order to keep that person in the residential care so what does it mean it means that you know most of the time when you have a client who has insurance sometimes you can only get 30 35 days at the most 45 or 60 days if you're lucky of treatment based upon that insurance policy that's what that means wow. so don't make the mistake of of, of thinking that just because you have an insurance policy your your treatment is covered uh-uh not the case the other thing is that people don't realize that, i mean you're insurance you deductible and you're out of pocket whatever has not been unmet on that okay you have to pay that up front <laughs> so if you have and if you're at a, a facility that's in network with a with a facility Okay, what does a network means? I, I explained this whole thing. In network means that the facility and the insurance company have already made a deal. They already, yeah. Okay, and and insurance companies like that because it's a good deal for them. Mm-hmm. And, and, the insur- and the facilities, they're told, well, you really want to do this because we can drive more clients to you, okay, than if you were out of network. Well, what happens is, um, when you are at whatever facility you go to, whether it's in or out of network, you, you have to write a check or give you have to pay for, let's say you have a $7,500 deductible, okay, and you've only used, let's say, $250 of it. Guess what? Let's say five, you've already spent $500 on it. You've got to write a check for $7,000. Now that's the deductible, but you also have an out of pocket so the deductible is part of the out of pocket your out of pocket could be twelve thousand dollars mm. you know people don't realize this no they just don't and that, mm. and and so it's it's like it's 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 not dignified
1: the addiction aspect you just look at the numbers what I'm going to zero in on is i'm putting myself in that position one of my kids i discover it that's the worst moment of my life i'm already in the shit i'm just gonna say that is the worst moment now i gotta go do this
2: Mm -hmm. yeah
1: so the effects on the caretaker Mm -hmm. i really wonder how many people with addiction they just have to tap out before they get the help and tap out i don't necessarily mean die i mean any range of that spectrum but it still results in people not getting help. There's just an exhaustion aspect, is there not?
2: Dude, you are so on it. Um, what are the alternatives? Okay, let's say you don't have the cash to do that. Well, you can go down to the next level of care, which is outpatient. Okay, which you don't include residents. Lots of people, yep. you know, most people, when they go to treatment, they go to outpatient. It's, first of all, it takes less of your resources. Uh, Insurance companies usually love covering out there (laughs) because it's less expensive. Right? Yeah. So trust me, I don't want people listening to this podcast to get the wrong impression. You don't have to go to residential treatment to get sober and, and stay in recovery. You don't have to, but it all depends upon the individual. And part of that is, okay, what are your resources? Mm-hmm. Okay. So a lot of people will use outpatient. I've, I've got in the book. This is how many people use outpatient. This is how many people oh, go to trade. Nice. I got it all uh, in there. Um, <clears throat> now, let's say you don't have insurance. Let's say you don't have any, um, uh, any resources. You know what? There are many programs throughout this country where the state will pay for your care. Wow. Okay. You just got to know what they are. Yep. And you got to know how to tap into them. And that's the difficult
1: part. And a very small group of people will have the presence of mind to hunt that down and find that out when they're now in a traumatic place of knowing that their loved one is an addict and is running the risk of death. You know, when I look at people in this space, I'm just picturing real people. You know, I, I know of myself, I would get so overwhelmed even if someone like you told me there's ways where the state I don't know if I'd be able to find it
2: well that's what I do for you yeah so and and trust me again uh, a lot of my clients are indigent they don't have, they can't Yeah. They exactly. Can anything exactly exactly so so again I'm not a saint okay no. but here's the bottom line when i'm working with somebody who flies me around in their private jet with their loved one to go back and you know, to t- take the treatment that person's gonna pay me top dollar. Yeah. Okay. If there's some and and that's a lot of work. Because when you have a lot of cash and a lot of resources, you have a lot of options. Mm. Right. And that that that's really busy time for me. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of options you need to check out on your mm. behalf. That's a good point. Exactly. I didn't think about that But if it's somebody who doesn't have two nickels to rub together, it's only so many there are options. a lot of options. Yeah. So right. it's not like I don't. I spend a fraction of the time on somebody who is indigent versus somebody who can pay whatever. Just because Only of the because options. It's there, a lack of options. Got it. You that,
3: mentioned something about it, and I'm curious how And there's a kind of a two-part question here. So, how long have you been doing this? Because you have a lot of numbers that you say you're putting. Six in? Six years. Okay, and so. What what are the trends you've seen in the six years in terms of the number of people who need help?
2: A lot of people are totally screwed. I'll give you an example. Um, If you have insurance, you go through the battle with the insurance company. And trust me, it's not the fault of the facility. The facility, they want to help you. It's just that if your care is being paid for by an insurance company, there's a huge battle, mm-hmm. huge battle. The other, the, other, the other issue is, the trend is that people are not getting the treatment that they need. And it's a combination of a few factors. One factor is purely financial, mm-hmm. which also you can wrap insurance into that as well. Yeah. I have a couple of suggestions, <clears throat> which I have in the book at the very end of the book, And that is this, there's a rehab just south of Dallas, just south of here. They do remarkable work. And the clinical director is the loveliest person you will ever know. know. And she, all day she argues and struggles with insurance companies about covering so-and-so's treatment. And then her husband gets cancer. It's a true story. He gets cancer, and he has the kind of cancer where there's a particular type of treatment which uh, works for somebody with this type of cancer. They have a insurance policy from a company we all know. Unfortunately, all the facilities that are in network with their insurance company, they don't do that kind of treatment. It's only offered at a facility that's out of network. Oh,
3: okay.
2: So, she has to go through the humiliation of explaining to an insurance company why they need a what's called a single case agreement. Right. Which means that even though a facility is out of network, they'll treat that facility as if it's in network because of the terminal. The her husband has a terminal disease. It's humiliating for her to have to fight for treatment to save her husband's life. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people, and unfortunately, probably some people listening to this podcast who are going through the exact same thing where they know somebody mm-hmm. who's going through the exact same thing. What I suggest, and again, there are probably people listening to this who could poke holes through it, big enough for a truck to get through. Sure, it's a theory. But, um, I believe there are a couple of issues that should never be a question as to whether a company. I mean, a lot of companies are nonprofit, but that doesn't mean, but they still need to make money. Right. Right? right. Um, there shouldn't be a question about whether somebody needs a particular treatment or not. We're talking about um, behavioral health, which is mental disorders, substance use disorders, and also. Um, To cancer or Mm -hmm. any type of disease that's that is terminal, right? If 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 untreated, and there was a thought that I wanted to say uh, uh, about this, it'll come it'll come back to me. Actually, it was a thought that would make me sound really smart, but (laughs) but now it's left you. (laughs) I have a habit of doing that. I love it, but um, that should not be a business decision. Right. It should be a service because um, here's the bottom line a lot of times people politicians you know will say we can't afford to give people more treatment you talk about states that don't expand medicaid mm. that is the dumbest freaking decision you could ever imagine yeah. it is stupid Texas has the largest population of people who are not covered by Medicaid because of their insistence of hating everything Obama. Mm -hmm. It is hurting the residents of this state. It's hurting the residents of the 13 other states that have not expanded Medicaid. And this isn't some liberal cause. It is in black and frickin' white about how you give somebody treatment and not only saves money— in terms of hospitals because their uncompensated care costs go way down because instead of somebody coming through the doors and you're treating that person knowing that that person doesn't have the ability to pay nor do they have insurance so you just got to suck it up, okay? Mm -hmm. Those costs go down. But here's the most important factor. When somebody is healthy and they work, they become a taxpayer. (laughs) They become a... Treatment is an economic yes. stimulant.
1: Thank you. Yep.
2: It is so. a stimulant to the economy because the more people you have working, the more taxes they're paying, and the more government services that a government can offer to its citizens. Where's the mystery? It seems
1: pretty obvious. Yeah.
2: It drives me crazy.
1: Yeah. Yep. And the the end user, which I'm going to bring it all the way back, because what was fascinating to me when we started this podcast when you were speaking with Steve, there's a difference when you talk with somebody from a medical perspective and when you talk from a business perspective and when you talk from a parent perspective or the survivor perspective. And it's amazing if you'll just switch the mindset, just switch the lens to I'm looking at a child or I'm looking at a loved one that is going to die from this. Isn't it crazy how everything becomes common sense? It's like all of a sudden common sense. You know, it's like you can't approach everything as a capitalistic business opportunity first. But if you'll start with the right motive, you can find ways to make money from it. You know what I'm saying? And I don't think that that's like some crazy, hippie, liberal idea. There's just some things that can't translate to a business decision first. You well,
2: know, you are correct. But part of the reason for that mm. is even though... We know it's the right decision. It may not help the, the facility that's doing the treatment, right? Right. They may take comfort in the fact that what they're doing is contributing to the overall economic health of the community, of the city, of the state, of the nation. But it's not like they get like a little extra in the envelope right. because they're doing it. They do, but it's way down the line. and they got to fight for it. They got to fight for it, but what I'm saying is it's part of helping the whole mm-hmm. as opposed to helping this individual sector, you know right away.
1: Right, right. Okay.
2: And that's a that's part of the problem. Mm. It really is it's, it's part of And there are statistics showing I have it in the book that every time for every the Washington state has done the greatest job in terms of, showing how treatment is an Hmm. economic stimulant yeah there have been studies after studies after studies that prove that for every dollar that's invested in treatment it has a net benefit of anywhere from seven dollars all the way up to over a thousand dollars depending upon the individual the bottom line is you invest in treatment you are investing in your nation you are investing in that individual
3: are a lot of studies out there and in other countries as well that say a dollar worth of preventive yeah help yeah over and above even before they have the diagnosis and if we could communicate that to companies that are big enough that they are self-insured mm-hmm. we could convince them that they can demand their third party administrators pay attention to this information because the insurance companies claim well you know we don't want to pay for that treatment for that person right now because even though it might help them in the future, they might not still be our policy holder, so that might not help us financially. And everybody, that's the mindset that we seem to have in our country right now is we're not really willing to help the whole. We don't really have the mindset of what we talk about, trying to make sure that the other person is well supported and healthy. It's all fragmented. Yeah, Yeah. and so we we, we don't even have that mindset ourselves for hardly anything.
2: You sound like you have fought this battle yourself many times. (laughs) Few times, you know. Yeah, you know.
3: Yeah, then yeah. they've done that. Yeah, and it, it's so we need this book. How can people order this book, and where can they get it, and how do they contact you?
2: You're a dream. <laughs> Maybe um, <laughs> later. The, yeah. the easiest way will be to order it on Amazon, mm. and uh, as we get closer to the release. Um, i mean we're, the publishers not there yet but they sure. will they will have it. there's going to be two editions um, one edition is the ebook and and then there's the hardcover yeah. the ebook is going to be re- released first some like in late october oh okay okay so believe me i will be in touch with you yeah. oh, don't worry about that <laughs> <laughs> really
3: <gonna listen> <laughs> uh, yeah yeah. That's good.
2: There's that guy there,
3: again. That book signing party.
2: That's good. a good idea actually. Yeah, you should yeah. try it. <laughs> no. Oh no, and I appreciate you asking and I appreciate you, you know, doing this mm. and I appreciate everything that you're saying to help, you know, yeah. people, you know, get this book.
3: Get this information and I appreciate and, it. and what you are doing and I haven't read this yet. So I haven't read the, the galleys, but I just know by looking at the beginning that we've looked at that it's, it's a very important book, and having talked with you, I know that everybody who gets a hold of this is going to benefit. And maybe not every single chapter they need, but they need a lot of this.
2: Well, actually, that's a really good point, because, first of all, I appreciate everything that you're saying. But the other thing is that in the book, I can tell you right now, when I was in crisis, the last thing I had time to do or the last book. thing I wanted to do was read a freaking book. Are you freaking crazy? Okay? <laughs> yeah. So that's why chapter seven is a summary of all the, the previous six page, uh, six chapters. So in case of emergency, start here. That's correct. And yeah. it goes boom, boom, point by point nice. by point. This is what you do. I love you don't it. have to read the prose. I would like it if you did later mm-hmm. on, but that's why chapter seven is a summary of the previous six chapters of, like, this is what you do. I love that
3: is spoken like somebody that's been on that journey. That's right.
2: That's exactly right. Again,
3: you sat down with a mindset that said, if I didn't have the resources that I had when I did to help my kid as quickly as what he was able to be helped, then... I don't know that my kid would still be alive at this day and what can I do to help other dads out there
2: and mothers and sisters and brothers and and aunts and uncles you're absolutely correct. And I'll be, and, and what really kind of puts it in perspective for me is if you said 30 years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, that, you know, you're going to write a book, you know, you know, You know, most of my friends are shocked that I even know how to read, (laughs) much less write a book. But um, what really gives me pause is, man, I I look at the comments of what treatment professionals have said about this book, and it's almost like an out-of-body, you know, experience. Like, man, I, I mean... And, and the reason I say that is not to tell you how great I am. The reason, although I'll, I'll always listen, the, the, the main reason is, is that this book doesn't exist other than what I've been able to, Just to do. This blows my
1: mind. Just blows my mind. But I also think
2: that only
3: somebody who was in your shoes, so it doesn't have to be a dad. It's somebody who all of a sudden gets the call it had to be written from that perspective in order for it to be this good. Yeah. If a treatment provider tried to write it, it would be from their perspective and it wouldn't be they they, yeah. they don't they don't know how much they already know. So that's part of the problem of somebody who is an expert, you need to walk in with green eyes, fresh eyes. Yeah. You know,
1: we, well, it's a you're you're a film guy, right? So you ever been on a set and you see the difference between film students and students? Guys that like came up through the trenches. I'm not saying that film students didn't know. It wasn't that. There's just a difference. Like when I was learning how to edit, I learned from a 20 year editor that had been editing forever. I didn't learn in a book. And I I look at that as a very. I keep coming back to that. Here is a person. Fortunately, you had someone that could help you in that moment. But man, when you're talking about my kids or someone I love, I don't want theory. I don't want initials. I want a dad. I want a heart. And that's the, that's something I think that we could go forever. I know. But I would like to kind of end on this particular note. You know, you, you've said several times, and I know you're you're joking, but you know, I'm not a saint. I don't, we don't need saints. We need father hearts and mother hearts and coming out from what they've experienced to help others. We don't need any more theory, man. Like we are so full of theory. People like you, people like our friend Steve, who was here earlier, I really think the next 10 years we're going to find more and more. It's the bikers helping the kid go to school. Again, I come back to that. It's like I really think in this time period the average Joe is the one that can do the most good right now. Not minimalizing the Ph.D. doctors.
2: And and the way, if you ask me how that can happen Mm -hmm. and how it should happen, is people in this country have got to get involved. Mm. They have got to get involved. And as more people experience the ravages, yeah. the brutality, yeah. the crisis of addiction, mm. and also of mental disorders, we have to give them a way of use, of taking action. Yeah. It's like, hopefully the point of the idea the point of this book is give, is to give people this is how you do it mm-hmm. we haven't figured it out yet an easy way for people throughout the nation no matter your political stripes how can you actually what is it that you can do that actually will exert the most influence we hear the term, we hear all the time call your congressman, call your senator. You know, most of the time, I'm only one person. I say, guess what? It works.
1: Mm.
2: Because you become one of many. Yeah, you get enough of those. Yeah. Now, am I saying, so what I'm saying is is that we are now in a situation two years ago before the pandemic, uh, it was a 19. Uh, uh, no, it was in 2017, I think, 18, when uh, the high was of uh, people who died of drug overdose was 72,000, okay? Now, and and then it, it started to go down to 68,000. Mm-hmm. Then the pandemic hits, it's over 80,000. Mm. Yeah. Okay? So it's, we've, we're in the third wave of mass addiction in our country. We just had
3: a guest that talked about that. I mm-hmm,
2: sure did. I, but, but
3: go ahead if, in case somebody didn't hear there that.
1: There have been at,
2: three at we're in the third wave. The right. first wave started in the 1800s during literally the building of the railroad. The
1: Industrial Revolution time basically. Well, that, but
2: also the Chinese laborers they brought uh, over opium. Op- I'm not putting a hex on,
1: of course. on Asians. Don't, right. get me,
2: don't get me wrong. But there were other ones but by the Early, by 1900, there were opium, opium uh, dens oh, yeah. in every city. And then by 1913, um, their deaths due to heroin, for instance, in New York City, were such that that's when the federal government said they put a ban on um, on opiates, mm. you know, like heroin and so forth. And then they started coming back uh, in, the, in the mid-40s. Basically, a lot of it was due to... Uh, um, well, it started in New York City, and and also college students, and no. and but it really got going during for with uh, returning veterans from the Vietnam War. Right. Yeah. And I tell you, man, in the 70s, the government really kicked kicked his ass. It really got into action. Um, the rates of addiction started going down. And that's because they started actually methadone and they actually had treatment programs for people if they wanted to, to, to get them. And they really started to work. Then in 1980, there was a new sheriff in town. There was a president who was elected, and a new president. And um, what happened was that it was like, it was all this, in the 1970s, all the psychi- a lot of psychiatrists when cuckoo's nest came out it had such an effect on people's perceptions of how to treat mental illness mm-hmm. they said we got to close down these institutions we got to we got to do something else we got to close them down so a lot of psychiatrists got together and they said this is here's a here's an alternative let's take people out of the institutions and let's put them in community health centers more or less, it's kind of like large, sober living houses, right. you know. But And also, they'll be part of the community. and And they started doing that, and a lot of them were successful. But then when the new administration came in, there was a recession, and there was a zeal to cut social programs. So what happened was... The plan was, let's close down the institutions and let's put that money into community health centers. Well, guess what? The institutions were closed, but the money for the community health centers never appeared. And that's why when I, in Santa Monica, where I've lived most of my life, when I used to run in Palisades Park all the time, and it was in 1982, I started seeing these people who were camped out right. in Palisades Park. I said, what the hell's, what's that, what's that all about? Well, that was the beginning of our homeless issue. And today, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it makes you cry. It just really does. And so my point is this. At some point, people have got to pull it all together and say to the government and to the people in Congress, we can't do this anymore. You, you have the wrong priorities. And I can get into a whole thing about the political stuff. Of course, sure. But um, it can happen. We, yeah. we can. There is a way to work with us.
1: Do you want to give any information out for anybody that would need your help?
2: Well, th- they can always email me at Walter at The Right Rehab. Walter at The Right Rehab. That's the easiest and the most efficient way to get a hold awesome. of me. Dot com. Do- thank you very much. That's right. Yeah, yep. dot com. Yeah. TheRightRehab.com. Awesome.
1: Well, listeners, thank you so much for uh, hanging in there through this conversation. It has been fast and furious, and I loved it. Listeners, make sure you check out channelsofhealth.com, and we will uh, see you in the next one.
0: Thank you for listening to Channels of Health. We're so glad you've joined us today. To find out more about our mission and to connect with Channels of Health, go to www.channelsofhealth.com. And you can email us directly at info at channelsofhealth.com. We look forward to our next episode with you. Until then, be well.